Following is a class given by His Holiness Jaya Patakaswami Maharaj on June 5th, 1988 at New Orleans, Louisiana, USA. The class begins with a reading from the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 2, verse 14. The non-permanent appearance of happiness and distress and their disappearance in due course are like the appearance and disappearance of winter and summer seasons. They arise from sense perception of Sayana and Bharata. One must learn how to make them without being disturbed. Report by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Bhagavad. In the proper discharge of duty, one has to learn to tolerate non-permanent appearances and disappearances of happiness. According to Vedic injunction, one has to take his bath early in the morning, even during the month of Magha, January, February. It is very cold at that time, but in spite of that, a man who abides by the religious principles does not hesitate to take his bath. Similarly, a woman who does not hesitate to cook in the kitchen in the months of May and June, the hottest part of the summer season. One has to execute his duty in spite of karmatic inconveniences. Similarly, to fight is the religious principle of the Kshatriyas. And although one has to fight with some friend or relative, one should not deviate from his prescribed duty. One has to follow the prescribed rules and regulations of religious principles in order to rise up to the platform of knowledge, because by knowledge and devotion only can one liberate himself from the clutches of maya, or illusion. The two different names of address given to Arjuna are also significant. To address him as Kunteya signifies his great blood relations from his mother's side. And to address him as Bharata signifies his greatness from his father's side. From both sides he is supposed to have a great heritage. The great heritage brings responsibility in the matter of proper discharge of duties. Therefore, he cannot avoid fighting. The Bhagavad Gita is spoken on the battlefield, and Arjuna was being drawn between being a pacifist or fighting. In this case, the fight was for establishing proper principles of justice, of religion, of government. When all good diplomacy failed, Still, the one side is belligerent and they're exploiting the situation. The only thing they'll listen to is force. Therefore, for the Kshatriyas, the warrior class of the Vedic culture, they have to be prepared to fight to defend the proper principles. That's their particular duty. But Arjuna, he was wavering. Because he saw that on the opposite side there were so many friends and so many uh, relatives who had taken the opposite side because of various political reasons. So he thought, well, they were willing to die and fight for 
how can I kill my relatives? I had better sense. He was very sentimental. He finally couldn't figure out what to do. He surrendered to Lord Krishna on the battlefield and Krishna spoke to Bhagavad Gita. So, this is a very famous verse, Matras Parsas to Kuntaya. By the sensory perception, one feels sukadukada, sometimes happy and sometimes distressed. Just like I'm coming back from a tour of South America. I just arrived yesterday from Brazil. I went to Ecuador, Peru, Chile, Argentina, Bolivia, and Brazil. And in South America, many of the cities are the Andes top, like La Paz, Cusco, Cuenca. So it's right now, especially in La Paz and in Cusco, it's the winter. Just like here is the summer, there it's south of the equator. So it's quite cold, especially at the high altitude. But then, within a few hours, if you fly to the coast, like in Guayaquil, and Turquia, Peru, on the day it's quite warm. Uh, there you feel like drinking some cool drink to refresh yourself, but in a cold climate you want to take something warm, some mate or some hot herbal tea. So, according to the slight change in the environment, a different thing will make one feel happiness or distress. So what we see as pleasing in one second, that can change and make us feel pretty second. For instance, someone dear and dear may have passed away that causes a distress, separation, sadness. Along with that, one may not feel happy because uh, even getting the inheritance, they'd rather have that person. Of course, that varies person to person. As uh, human beings, we have to realize the relativity of happiness and distress. In the modern world, everywhere you find advertisements, especially uh, commercials on TV, they're trying to project different ways of being happy. They project images of by smoking cigarettes, of people surfing, and uh, natural outdoors gives an impression of great happiness. Of course, by smoking someone may get cancer, which is a great suffering. And the smoke has nothing to do with the great outdoors. But the propaganda is trying to get the people more enthusiastic to be happy to the senses. But here Krishna is saying, the Siddhoshanasukadukada, that no matter what situation you're in, your senses are one minute going to be happy, next minute they're going to be sad. They're going to be in distress. It's the nature of this body. See, so people think that there's some way to create an environment where they're always going to be happy, and the happiness is based on sense perception. It's an illusion. It's impossible. Relatively, one may have more percentage of happiness and less than percentage of distress, but distress will always be there. And even in the most distressful situation, even if someone's put in a prison house, they may kind of joke and laugh, or they may feel, have a good sleep or something, who knows? They may experience a little happiness even though they're in a kind of healthy situation. So, happiness and distress, they're always changing when it's based on the contact with the senses. 
So Krishna consciousness means to understand that we're more than the body. That the body is a type of machine made of the material energy. We're the living force within this machine. Because of the living force's presence, this machine appears to be alive. When the living force leaves the body, the body no longer appears to be alive. The body, in fact, was never alive. The living symptoms are the symptoms of the presence of the living force or the soul, the living entity within the body. This uh, second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita gives a lot of instructions about this uh, living entity. What is the nature of the living force in the body? How to realize it? How big is it? Where is it situated? In the uh, text 17 it describes Abhinashi tutat vidhi yena sarvam idam tatam vinasam abdhyasyasya nakas chitkartum arvati that which pervades the entire body you should know to be indestructible. No one is able to destroy that imperishable soul. The purport, this verse more clearly explains the real nature of the soul which is spread all over the body. Anyone can understand what is spread all over the body in his consciousness. Everyone is conscious of the pains and pleasures of the body implied by as a whole. The spreading of consciousness is limited within one's own body. The pains and pleasures of one body are known to another. Therefore, each and every body is the embodiment of an individual soul, and the symptom of the soul's presence is perceived as individual consciousness. The soul is described as one ten thousandth part of the upper portion of the hair point in size. The Svetha Swatra Upanishad, chapter 5, verse 9, confirms it. Balagra on the upper point of the hair is divided into 100 parts, and again each of such parts is further divided into 100 parts. Each part is the measurement of the dimension of the spirit soul. The Plato Swatam Upanishad was written over 5,000 years ago. One of the oldest books in the world. There it describes that where the size of the individual soul is from which all the consciousness in the body is coming from. You take a, 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 tear, a, a hair, the tip of the hair is smaller than the root. A little tip of the hair, you can divide it into a hundred parts. You take that one hundredth part and divide that into a hundred parts. A hundred times a hundred is a ten thousand of the tip of the hair. It's the very atomic, molecular size. That little dimension, atomic dimension, is the size of the spirit soul in the body. But that spirit soul has got unlimited potency, greater even than millions of suns. Because even a sun has a beginning and an end. But that little spirit soul has got no end, but no beginning. In a liberated state, the spirit soul has got tremendous potential, has tremendous potency. In the present condition state, it has a tremendous potential. But we are not able to tap it because we don't identify ourselves with that spirit. We identify ourselves as the body. 
And therefore, some days it's sunny out, some days it's raining out. When it's raining out, sometimes we feel bad. For the farmer, when it rains, he feels good if he needs irrigation. But if he has the same rain, if he has a ripened uh, rice crop, and there's a wind and rain, it'll knock all the rice off the plant and he'll lose his whole crop. Then he's very frustrated by it. So just a slight difference of a few months, the same rain he may laugh and just be done in the rain. The next uh, two months later, if the rain crack comes, he'll be crying. Now lost in the whole crop. So in the material world, one person is laughing, another person is crying. Someone wants to watch the football game, there's an outdoor uh, stadium, college game or something, it rains, they're crying, oh, we missed the game. The farmer has got a drought, he's waiting, he's laughing. How can you please everyone? How can everyone be happy? This way, some people are happy, some people are sad, any given thing. But if someone understands who they are, that they are not the temporary body, then this temporary happiness and distress of the body is not very significant. It doesn't affect one very much. One has a higher point of vision, higher reference point. By seeing what is making the body conscious, what makes the difference between a living body 150 pounds of chemicals, or a bag of chemicals every day in the Mississippi. Companies are dumping so many chemicals in the river. You can't even drink the water. And so nobody's crying because the chemicals are getting lost in the river. We're crying because we can't drink the water. But if someone dumps, dumps 150 pounds of chemicals in the river, no one's lamenting for the chemicals. But if a child, like yesterday I read in the paper, there was a, a man drowned in Lake Pontchartrain for two men. Many people are upset about that. The wives, the family. So there's a difference between 150 pounds of chemicals and a man. But what is the difference? We're made of chemicals. The modern science doesn't really answer, doesn't address this problem. Saying that we evolved from chemicals, and why do we find that the a loss of the human being. The Vedas that because a living soul is present in the body, therefore the living body has got more significance than any just inert matter. A dog, an animal, a plant, each one possesses the same type of living entity, but the consciousness is developed to a different degree. Human consciousness is developed to the maximum degree amongst all the animal species. And within the human consciousness, we can fully develop until we are actually conscious of the Self and the Supreme Self. This is the purpose of human life, is to develop ourselves to our full potential. Now, some interesting points are made here, that we are conscious of our body. Sometimes people, nowadays, the new age theory is that everyone is God. You see, but God means universal consciousness. That he's conscious of everything going on in the whole universe. That means what's happening in my body, in someone else's body. Just like I live in India for 20 years. So if you give me a sabji, it means a vegetable sabji. If you give me a vegetable with lots of chilies, I may find it, oh, this is very good. Easy to digest. Nice and spicy. But to a Westerner who's not accustomed to taking hot chili, they may think, oh, and their mouth will be burning. 
Water. So, what's the matter? <laughs> so one person won't know what's going on in another person's body from the same thing. One person may think, oh, this is hot. My mother, I, I, sometimes my mother, when she was here, she can't take spice. I would taste it, it's all right. Mild spice, she take it, ooh, my mouth is burning. <laughs> so, I don't know what another person is feeling. We can get some symptom from outside. We're not experiencing it. If someone fly, bites me, I'm going to feel it, not the next person. Sometimes we feel the sentiment when we see someone suffering, we feel for them. We, we feel sad to see another person sad. That's another thing. That's a nature of a human with an advanced consciousness to actually feel compassion for another. But the actual pain, the, the perception of the pain or pleasure, that's each individual body. Because we have individual consciousness, that means that we don't have universal consciousness. Therefore the Vedas say it's not possible for an individual soul to actually become the Supreme Soul. The Supreme Soul is always the Supreme Soul. The individual soul is always individual soul. But we can become united. We can become in harmony. We can become in complete uh, communion with the Supreme Soul. And then this way we can perceive what is beyond the material world. We can perceive the actual the spiritual identity of everyone. We can transcend the sufferings and the duality material world. We are being, we're all a part of that spiritual origin of everything, the absolute truth, the supreme person. We are all a part of that absolute truth, but we become dormant in our spiritual potential. We become dormant. We're not able to function as a liberated soul functions. We are limited by the body, by the things that we perceive. Our perception is limited. Our understanding, everything is limited in how to get over that. We need to get over that by transcendental cultivation of knowledge. But better than knowledge, because the fruit of knowledge is understanding, realization is meditation, because by meditation you will realize. So we meditate by chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, Hare Hare. This is the easiest method of meditation and it's the most effective. The chanting of this mantra, the mantra creates a kind of spiritual presence, divine presence, that by mere association brings up the spiritual consciousness of the individual. We know, for instance, if you put an iron rod in fire, why does the iron rod get hot? According to scientific understanding, heat means the molecules are moving faster. The fire is moving at a very fast rate, all of the molecules. When the steel is cold, the molecules are moving at a much less rapid rate. You put the iron rod in the fire, and by the association of those rapid moving molecules, the iron molecules start to also move very rapidly, and therefore it becomes red. When you touch that to someone, and they experience the phenomenon known as burning. To put it more scientifically. <laughs> so actually, that association brings up the vibrational level of the molecules of the iron. Similarly, 
Although we may not understand it intellectually or just we may not understand, but somehow it has been revealed by the Vedas that these mantras, which are actually powerful names of God, arranged in a form of meditation, that when you chant this, this brings up, because we are ultimately parts of God, this brings up our vibration or spiritual force to a level at one, at oneness with the spiritual level of God. And we don't become God, but we become in oneness with Him by the force of the meditation on His name. So this is a very good mantra. It's called mantra yoga. Through this very simple meditation, one can feel tremendous spiritual force. It's actually very systematic, it's very scientific. But there are other processes of yoga, like the Eightfold Yoga Mystic Yoga System, where one learns the asanas, learns to sit in one place, does the breathing exercises. Through the breathing exercises, gradually one starts to control the thoughts, slow the thoughts down, and then eventually is able to stop the thought process, and then between the thoughts, start to meditate on the absolute truth in the heart. At that, after years of practice, and one, when one starts to meditate on the absolute truth in the heart, the form of the super-soul in the heart, then one starts to really build up one's spiritual vibration in the presence of that very deep trance of meditation. But that takes a lot of practice to come to that level of deep trance and meditation. But you can achieve it in a few minutes by chanting Hare Krishna. If you have a complete concentration. Concentration, attention, is very important. That's why when you chant and dance with the instruments, then the mind is automatically uh, absorbed. It's very, uh, it's giving it its full attention. Sometimes if one just chants alone, then the mind thinks about the stock market or the movie star or this or that, something that goes on here and there. And you have to bring the mind back to concentrate on the chanting. We don't keep the full attention all of the time. So, but the group chanting, therefore, is considered more potent, more powerful, more effective. As it brings one's consciousness very dynamically into the meditation. About 500 years ago, the great spiritual master of the holy name, uh, Haridas Thakur, he was traveling around India, and he was visiting one of his friends, whose name was Bhagavan Acharya. He was the guru or the spiritual master of the Mazumdars. The Mazumdars were a very rich landlord family. There was a feudal system in India at that time. They had emperors. Under the emperor there were king. Under the kings there were landlords. Like that world's dukes, lords in Europe. The landlord, they had their own small army. They would give the agricultural land out to the farmers and they would take taxes from so this particular landlord, he had to pay 1,200,000 gold coins, each weighing 11 grams, in taxes every year. So about a little more than a third, and three of the coins is more than an ounce. So he was having to pay taxes about 400,000 ounces, 500,000 ounces of gold a year. By today's rate, it's about what, $400 an ounce. So you can calculate, he was quite wealthy. That was a taxi thing, what to speak of the traffic effect for himself. But 
He was a very pious gentleman, he and his brother. And every night they would gather together and they would discuss about Krishna consciousness, they would read from the Bhagavad Gita, he'd call all of the, the, the intellectuals and the priests and the people, and they would come together and they would discuss the topics. He was very generous, he'd give donations to all of the saintly people in this way. He promoted the culture. Although he was very wealthy, but he was also well liked by the people in his uh, locality because he was very generous. He would have big festivals, he maintained temples, like this. So the Harigad Thakur was actually born in Mahamadan, but he became a chanter of Hare Krishna. And he was the, considered the best authority on chanting Hare Krishna. He would chant 300,000 times Hare Krishna in a day. He would chant in one year, in one month, but we chant in the whole year. That's how much he would chant. Today, we're in the priests of the Hare Krishna movement, or what you call them, the yogis, the initiated devotees. What they chant in a year is what Haridas Thakur would chant in a month. We chant about 25,000 times Hare Krishna in a day, he chanted 300,000 times. It's almost inconceivable. Because it takes us two hours to chant 25,000. And so if he chants 300,000, that he'd multiply two by 12 more times, 24 hours. When did he have time for anything else? Well, he was a very fast chanter. <laughs> but he was a very intense chanter. He could he would chant 100,000 times out loud, 100,000 times, very softly. And 100,000 times he would just chant in his mind. Sometimes people ask, why don't we just chant mentally? Because we chant so few times, and chanting loudly is more effective than to just chant mentally won't serve the purpose. We chant 300,000 times, then you can chant the last 100,000 times mentally, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're only chanting a few thousand times in a day at most, then better to chant it out loud and to listen, because it's considered even by him 100 times more effective. So Haridas Thakur, he was visiting, as I mentioned, Bhagavan Acharya, the guru of this great landlord, and so the evening meeting when all the Sandy people would come and discuss the Bhagavad Gita at this uh, landlord's uh, hall. He had a big hall where everyone would gather together and discuss these topics, have classes and things. So he brought uh, Haridas Thakur. So then Haridas Thakur was asked by some people to mention, to explain what is the real glory or the real benefit of chanting Hare Krishna. One person said, yes, we heard you are a great expert, so we want to hear, because we've heard that by chanting Hare Krishna, one can get liberation from repetition of reincarnation. In other words, someone wanted to show off a little bit what he knew by asking a question already giving half the answer. <laughs> then someone else said, yes, I also heard that uh, by chanting, you see, one can uh, get rid of all the bad karmic reactions and go to the higher planets. So then, Haridas Thakur, he explained, well, these are not difficult for the Holy Name. These are not the real benefit of chanting Hare Krishna. That uh, if one really attentively chants Hare Krishna seriously, they can not only achieve liberation, that's a side benefit. They can easily get freed from the reincarnation cycle, but they can develop 
And remember their original loving relationship with Krishna and return back to the spiritual world. Even in his body they can remember and achieve that pure love. Is it actually by accidentally chanting Hare Krishna? Say someone said, oh there's the Hare Krishna. Just by saying Hare Krishna in a joking manner, that may be enough to free a person from the cycle of reincarnation. Possibly. It's happened. Say someone just sees a Hare Krishna and says, oh there's a Hare Krishna. And just at that moment he gets hit by a car or something. That was the last thing he thought of. Back he goes. No more reincarnation, liberation. Because his last thought was Krishna. Even accidentally. So, while he explained that there was one really young, attractive man, he was the chief tax collector for the Mazumdars, and that's a lot of taxes to collect, so he also quite wealthy, up and coming, like a kind of a stock exchange executive kind of person in the 500 years ago. And he was the one dealing with collecting all the money. But he was personally, he was really into this other form of yoga, the mystic yoga, doing hatha yoga, breathing exercises. So according to that process, it takes sometimes several births before one could hope to get liberation. When they get a few mystic powers, they're able to levitate or something. That's, that you can achieve if you really work at it, but to really get free from the cycle of reincarnation, that's very difficult by that process. Sometimes it takes even hundreds of births. So, when he heard this, that we can accidentally chant Hare Krishna, and even then sometimes someone will get liberation. So, liberation is not such an important thing as developing our full spiritual potential through chanting Hare Krishna, developing pure love of Krishna. He stood up and he said, What are you, what are you speaking? This is nonsense! And how are you, all you gentlemen here listening to this, listening to this, Sentimentalist, how can you just tolerate what great yogis and mystics in the Himalaya mountains doing mystic yoga, breathing in and out for thousands of years and births and births together and they cannot achieve liberation? He says you just accidentally chant the name of Krishna and you can achieve liberation? How can you tolerate this? People were just astonished. Here they're having a nice talk. Just, this guy stands up, starts screaming at everyone. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so I mean, they were shocked. Why? You know, just. But they were. It was like happened so quick they couldn't do anything. Arirash Thakur. He said, "No. Everything I said, I'm not repeating my own opinion. This is what all the great masters of yoga have stated." process of mantra yoga, bhakti yoga, chanting the name of Krishna. This is completely authorized. That by chanting this you can achieve liberation even if you just inattentively chant. And the real fruit, if you attentively give your full consciousness to chanting, you can develop fully your realization of God, of love of God, everything. The other young upstart, he couldn't accept this. He said, no, if you can achieve liberation by chanting Hare Krishna, if you can achieve liberation, I don't believe it. You can achieve liberation by chanting. If you can't, I'm going to cut your nose off. Haridas Thakur said, if you can achieve liberation by accidentally chanting Hare Krishna, I'll cut my own nose off. Then everyone, what? what's going on here? So get out of here. 
went over to Haridas Thakur and please forgive us for our very inappropriate activity of this. Like this, sometimes people, they get really attached to the idea, they come out. So in the Vedic culture, everything is based on the Vedas, based upon the books of knowledge. It's not one person's opinion over another, there's books. It's true that by taking that particular path of yoga, it may take hundreds of births, but there's other paths of yoga, and the particular yoga we're giving that has been handed down only does take one birth. If one's serious about it, if one tolerates the dualities that come along in the material life and keeps their practice of Krishna consciousness, chanting every day Hare Krishna for a little while, eating the Krishna conscious food, Today everyone's going to be given a feast. I like to, you know, we would all like to hear how do you like it? How do you like the Krishna consciousness? But this is part of our yoga meditation. Use the senses. Don't abuse them. Don't misuse them. Use them properly. Use them in the meditation. Chant Hare Krishna. Hear the chanting. Hear it. Let it absorb the consciousness. Dance while you chant. If you feel like dancing, then dance. It's all right. Get the most concentration you can on that vibration. Then afterwards, you feast on the yogic food, be completely meditating on the food. Taste it completely. In that food, there is the presence of Krishna. Spiritual energy is there. It's prashad. It's considered divine. We try to use all the senses in the service of Krishna. Someone cooked it. When they cooked it, they used their hands. They walked in the kitchen. They used their legs. They used their brain. How much spice to put. How did everything. We want to use all of the senses, all of the faculties of the human being in the meditation. So it's very, it's very easy to perform. You don't need a lot of training. If you want to sit still and not move for a year, you have to be, you have to really be able to, to practice. It's easy to walk. Everyone's walking, but if you want to dancing, it's in heart. You see, especially if there's no specific step you have to take. But if you want to just sit somewhere, not move for like a day a week, a month, a year, years that Buddha sat in one place for six years without moving, right? In America, people, they sit more than 15 minutes without a commercial, they get nervous. <laughs> How many people are going to be able to sit for hours together meditating? It's difficult. You can't, if you know the technique, you can use that also to sit and chant Hare Krishna. That also is one way of getting good concentration. There were great bhakti yogis who also were perfect in the process of mystic or hatha yoga. Vishma Dev, he had the power of mystic yoga as well as bhakti yoga. So he, when he was injured, fatally injured, he used his mystic powers that he got from the, the mystic yoga to not die. He kept himself alive until Krishna came personally present. And then when Krishna was present, then he left his body and achieved liberation. One doesn't have to know birth, even both. Even just by one it's enough. But bhakti yoga is sufficient. But if someone already knows hatha yoga, there's no problem. You can sit straight and chant Hare Krishna. It's very good. Good posture helps good concentration. You can sit for hours together chanting in the park, in the temple. In the weekdays, it's very quiet here. Someone can come and chant in front of the deity. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare. Hare Rama, Hare Rama, so like this, sometimes someone is going and trying to preach the message of Krishna God, someone comes up and they get all offended. Oh, why are you saying this? This is the only way. 
The devotees, they don't think there's only one way. There are different ways, but what is the different way? How long does it take? What is the process? That's what we're taught in the Bhagavad Gita, that the different ways each have their relative characteristic. And then someone should choose what way they want to do, according to their own nature. If someone doesn't like to chant dance, they don't like to say it, they just like to sit in one place. They don't believe in God, they don't want to hear about it, they don't want to chant any names of it, they just want to control everything through their own mind. And there are people like that. So then the mystic yoga process maybe you see suitable for that, but it's a long, difficult process. But if one doesn't have any grudge against uh, there being a supreme intelligence, a supreme being, and that by chanting mantras handed down from him, that this can bring us up very quickly within a short time, well, it's a much easier way. And it's very joyfully performed. It's, during, it's performed like a festival. But although it's so festive, sometimes you see the devotees are chanting and dancing, it seems almost difficult to understand. How is this a process of very serious self-realization? But it is. It's a very serious process. But what's wrong with being happy? I mean, we're supposed to be happy. That's the purpose of life. But real happiness doesn't come from the sense perception, because that's just a temporary happiness. One second we're happy, next second we're frustrated. Sitoshna But the permanent happiness that comes from within, that comes from the living force, that we actually are. We're the living force in the body. When we become fully developed spiritually, then we naturally feel happy. Then uh, distress happens in the material world, it doesn't crush us. We don't get depression. If some success happens, we don't get some elation that intoxicates us and makes us forget everything. All these extremes come from over-attachment to material consciousness, or rather over-identification with the material world. And whoever gets elected as the president, you watch his face on and he hears the final results. You know, the, the six months later, everybody, they're back, you know, in the grind. Everybody's attacking them for all the mistakes they made. So these contradictions are there in the material world, but for the devotee, they don't find that this is the real absolute purpose of life. Happiness is something much more profound, much more sublime. And that happiness, the happiness without this duality, is what Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and Nityananda Prabhu wanted to give to all of the people. And what they requested is spread this out in the whole world. People who are intelligent know that there's a difference between a relative cheap kind of happiness and the real profound inner peace and inner happiness that people are hankering for. And those intelligent people will take it up. They'll try it. You're not saying accept blindly. You have to believe. Don't believe. Just try it. Just chant Hare Krishna. In an unbelieving way, chant it. Chant it every day for an hour, for a couple of months, without any belief. Still it will work. That's our strong conviction. You'll feel a change. You'll feel more peaceful. You'll feel some inner happiness coming. That is the potency of the mantra. How do you know how good a vitamin is or how good food is? If you eat it and you get healthy, you know that food's good. If you take medicine and your disease gets cured, you know it's good. Right? The company can advertise, this is the best medicine, this will cure everything. They can give you all kinds of uh, certification on the bottle, everything. But when you take it, if it doesn't cure your disease, what's the use? So all we're saying is not to blindly believe, but also not to just reject without trying. Just try it. If it makes you feel happier, then what's wrong? If by chanting Hare Krishna you feel happy, you get peace of mind, you understand what is the universe, who are you, and eventually you go back to the spiritual world, what is the difficulty? Even if you just get peace of mind by the meditation. For peace of mind, people are spending so much. We're not asking for 
money for chanting Hare Krishna. If someone wants to give money for helping our pay the mortgage and uh, distribute the prasadam to the people, of course, we gladly accept. Because living in this modern world, we need financial uh, support. But there's no charge that we are requiring that anyone has to give to chant Hare Krishna. Because if we were to put a price on it, what price would we put? We can put a price on a book because it costs so much to print. But if we want to put a price on Hare Krishna, well then we have to, where would we start? Five trillion dollars? Five hundred million billion or what? <laughs> it still would be like an insult. Because any amount of wealth couldn't bring the happiness that Chani Hare Krishna can bring. So if you start putting a price tag on it, you'd have to put a price tag so fantastic that no one could buy it. It would be inequitable. So therefore better not to insult the holy name and give it it's a priceless gift. So the actual thing is that according to how one chants, with attention, how much they give, and that's how much they'll get. So the real price we pay is chanting. That's the price. So thank you very much for your attentive listening. See how you guys talk for after that. He didn't like to stay in that place. That he went on and then uh, he was able to she delivered many people into the chanting of Hare Krishna. Sometimes people are good, sometimes they don't. But the devotees, they are mother duty, certainly how people are suffering. Even we don't feel the suffering in our body, we know that people are suffering, so try to help them. What else is there to do? We have to spend the time until we have to leave the body. So during this time, the more help we can do for others, to make them more Krishna conscious, more happy, that will be the best use of this body. We live for the help of others. So some people are dedicated to helping others. They're called Brahmins. They live in ashrams and communities dedicated for this type of spiritual culture. Those who are supporting such communities, who are more militant, or shall we say more like uh, courageous type of people, they like to protect. They may live inside or they administrate or they protect from enemies and things. There are others who are more business-minded, they grow crops, they do agriculture, they do business, and they contribute their money for supporting such programs. And then there are others who, they like to live simply, and they just, or however they, they, they don't like to have too much pressure, but they want a very clear program of some occupation in their own house, which are Hare Krishna. So all different kinds of people are there in the world, and all different kinds of people have a place in the Krishna conscious process of Bhakti Yoga. So we thank all of you because we consider all of you to be members of this Krishna conscious movement because you're coming here, you're listening, you're chanting, you're participating. We consider that a type of membership. Those who like to be more formally connected, of course there are different programs for that, like life membership or folk membership, friends of Lord Krishna, different training programs, vegetarian cooking, meditation, or even saying you become a school teacher of this, uh, to teach children this kind of uh, both material as well as spiritual topics, different uh, services are there. We thank all of you for coming. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Hare Hare. Any questions? First of all, you have something I'd like to say. Last year I saw you uh, in the uh, so it's a pleasure. Every time I listen to you, you learn an awful lot. 
So just like there's the sun, there's the sunlight. So we consider the sun is like the source of energy and the sunlight is the energy. Both things are essential. You can't have sun without sunlight or sunlight without the sun. Similarly, you can't have the absolute truth without the energies of the absolute truth. You can't have a king without subject. So Hare is addressing the energy and Krishna is addressing the power the energetic source of all energy. So Krishna is specific. What energy then? Well, Krishna is a combination of two Sanskrit words. Krish means to attract. Akarshana, Krish. It's all attractive. Just like uh, the word charisma comes from the word Krishna. Because charisma means someone who's got some characteristic about him which is very attractive. So a person is very charismatic. The word comes from Krishna in Sanskrit originally, but no one usually puts it together. Na means happy, or the source of all happiness. Come from the word Ananda. So Krishna means the reservoir of all happiness, which is all attractive. Right? People are attracted by happiness, they want to be happy. See people that get happy by money or by fame or by power, they're attracted by, by wealth, by different things, by beauty. So that attractiveness, which is all attractive for everyone, which is the happiness that it is the fuente or the source of all happiness, that is known as Krishna. Hare is addressing the energy or the pleasure potency of Krishna. Rama means the supreme happiness. It's a more simpler idea. The supreme happiness as well as the supreme uh, enjoyer. So by chanting Rama, one becomes happy. Also by chanting Krishna, you get attracted to the spiritual happiness. So by one one chance, one doesn't have to think of the meaning of the word. It's not like an intellectual effort that one has to meditate on Hare, energy, Krishna, source of energy, happiness, reservoir, pleasure. Hare, Krishna. One doesn't have to go 
and uh, think of the meaning of each word when you chant it. Just by chanting, that itself, as I explained before you came, that it brings up, the mantra itself has a tremendous spiritual uh, presence, has a spiritual potency to it, that brings up our own spiritual uh, vibration or spiritual uh, level. So just like I gave the example that by putting a steel rod in the fire, the molecules of the fire are going quickly, that heats up the steel rod, its molecules go quickly. So by contact with fire, the steel rod becomes just like fire. So by contact with the mantra, we actually have the potential, the unlimited potential of being completely spiritual, emancipated, of being in the free light, of being in the presence of, the, of God, of having divine, eternal, spiritual knowledge and bliss. We have these potentials within us, but they're dormant. We need to bring up our level of spirituality. Whatever brings that level up quickest, that's the most effective. So this chanting and the mantra does that, because these different names, the mantra is imbibed with that spiritual potency. So by chanting, that means we're, we're putting ourselves, just like if you put yourself in the sunlight, you get a tan. If you put yourself in the presence of the mantra long enough, and, and with the proper attention, it starts to bring up your own inner spiritual potency. You start to realize that someone can read the Bhagavad Gita, so I can't understand what this is. But by chanting, they open it up and say, oh, now I understand. The ability to comprehend spiritual subject matters is not just academic. There are great professors that study all the Vedas that can tell you this philosophy says this and that philosophy says that. But then, so which do you believe in? I don't know. I don't believe in anything. I can't believe in just, I just know what they all say. So they've never really realized. They haven't gone deep into it. They just kind of superficially know. But they get, it doesn't really penetrate. Hey, this is not what we're talking about, just like academic understanding. We're talking about real realization. Well, you actually perceive something, you realize it, you can, you can understand it in a much more in a profound way, in a, in a sublime way. Just like if you eat something, if someone can tell you what apple, write whole books on apples, the chemical quality of it, how many calcium molecules and carbohydrate or fat or protein or whatever, every area you can hold a book on it, on apple. What does it taste like? You can write, you can read a book about apple, but you, you don't, still don't want to tell you what it tastes like. You had to bite into it, then you know this is all apple. So it's like a realization is through perception, through direct perception is different than just knowing about something. You know a lot about something, but that's why it's more important to meditate. For most people, they don't want to meditate until they know a little bit about it. Especially nowadays, people are conservative. Before, Hare Krishna movement was popular because people didn't really, they thought, I'll try anything once. So they would try Hare Krishna and they really felt good. And now people say, wait a minute, I want to know about it first. Then I'll know it. Which is alright, but we have plenty of books describing the whole process, the background of it, what's it all about. But ultimately people need to practice it to get the, the, at least the chanting to be able to get a more of a clear understanding. We want people to get a, uh, not only just to kind of a, a superficial understanding, but to really get a, a taste for it, to get a, a perception of it, an experience. And this experience, everyone who does chant for one or two months, even sometime in a matter of days, but at least in one or two months, they do get an experience. 
They experience something. Does that explain a little bit? Any other question? I just, I'm a beginner. I'm still a beginner in Jedi Fisher, but I, I can say I, I came to the group and I had, had many problems that a lot of people, a lot of people in my kind of background have, you know, prone to cause trouble and uh, like being a big shot. And uh, I like thinking of myself as uh, someone, someone important. And basically, uh, my basic my realization of Chan Krishna is that I can see more and more. Uh, I'm really not a person, really not as important as I think I am. Actually, I've got many, many uh, bad qualities that need to be that need to be purified of in order to uh, be allowed to stay and associate with so many nice devotees or so many people that. Are, dedicating their lives to serving the Lord. And uh, chanting Hare Krishna basically is showing me how how uh, more and more I can see what is actually real happiness. That happiness is actually uh, giving up these, uh, I'm sure the was saying, giving up these, these temporary ideas of happiness. Something that makes you happy. One thing is, going to cause uh, stress in those situations. And, uh, and uh, but also, I also have a realization that Chanting Hare Krishna is helping to understand Bhagavad Gita a little better too. So many things, uh, and I'm just a beginner. What to speak of, what it does for the Jewish soul. So, Shri the Tripod, you can see he's a, a pure devotee of the Lord. And uh, that's, that's everyone's goal in this movement is to following his footsteps and to become purified and to become a devotee of the Lord, completely free of all material concepts of life and the will of our And when you chant Hare Krishna, you experience anything? Yes, you're not right. Hare Krishna. <laughs> <laughs> it's not possible to avoid happiness in the material world. We're not against happiness. But neither the point of happiness in the material world as well as sadness is relative. So by experiencing a higher happiness, then we become detached from lower happiness. So the process of bhakti yoga is to cultivate the higher happiness. Rather than live a life that's simply based upon temporary happiness, which you can't maintain permanently. It doesn't mean that we don't have happiness. There's happiness of both types. But the temporary happiness one is not attached to it, because it was the use of being attached to it. One minute you're happy, next minute you're sad. If you're attached to happiness, that means you're detached from uh, suffering. And one in the world is gone, one day will be healthy, next day will be sick. Any other question? When, uh, when 100 years ago, about 55, about 80 years ago, the guru of Bhakti Vedanta Swami Prabhupada, he's the founder of Acharya who came and brought the movement to the West. But he, his guru sent someone else before. And that person came and he told one board in England, you should practice the Bhakti Yoga. He said, well, what does that mean? He said, well, you chant mantras and then you get rid of the bad habits. He says, well, what kind of bad habits? He says, well, you give up intoxication, you give up prostitution, you give up meat eating, you give up gambling. Then the Lord said, 
I'll die. That's life. You want me to give up life? There's nothing beyond this thing. So, the point is that it's only people that want happiness, and in the modern world, that's what happiness means. But now we're seeing that there's so many problems that are coming. People become a little more sensible about uh, regulating themselves, controlling themselves, and their sexual behavior, AIDS, and everything, in their diet, with cancer, and various problems. So even by the material force, people are forced into this, but they find it very difficult. They know if I eat smoking, I may die of cancer, but they can't stop. Because they don't have an alternative. Even they want to give it, they don't have that is an addicting, they don't have an alternative, it's like a crutch. They feel some anxiety, they get a little get a little shot of this, they get a little dose of that, and they feel some relief. But when you actually experience the inner peace, which you don't lose, and you get the happiness by chanting Hare Krishna, then you can easily refrain from depending on a lot of crutches that we normally depend upon. And you feel much better. And the more that you can depend on the inner self, how do get people to depend on their own inner spiritual potential? Depend on the supreme force that's within them, and depend on Krishna who's within, then they actually become independent of all these things which you can sum up as bad habits. And people can lead natural, nice family lives, like Krishna conscious children. They can have nice, peaceful life without having to depend upon marijuana or other type of drugs. You can be happy just from chanting. So why? involved in drug habit which takes away one's intelligence and uh, lifespan, health, relationships. These are very good points. So any other question? I think with the, with the mind. Mm -hmm. And the mind, and, uh, so without the mind, you know, when we lose body, what kind of thinking? There are two bodies. You have a gross body and a subtle body. The mind, intelligence, and the false ego. Ahankara, or your subtle body. Now people are, when you sleep at night, you leave your gross body in your subtle body. Astral projection is leaving the body in the subtle body, but being conscious of it. That means that your, you, the soul, the living force, and the subtle body lose the contact with the gross body. The gross body, when it loses contact with the living force, it stops, the heart stops beating, the circulation stops, the consciousness is no longer there, it's considered dead. But the soul and the subtle body do not. You take a new birth based upon your subtle body, that's why your desires, based on your desires and your karma, you get a particular birth. Now, the problem comes that when you take a new birth, you may have many high desires, but depending on what type of activities you've done, that makes a difference, how high you go. Someone may want to be a businessman, whether they're a Rockefeller, whether they're or, you know, a corner grocery store businessman. That depends on their karmas. But the fact that there is scientific proof, you can say, that we take our subtle mind, our subtle intelligence with us to our next birth, because through that process of regression, hypnotic regression, any person who is subject to hypnotism, they can be taken back to their previous life. In other words, the subtle consciousness connected with the subconscious.
taxes. And what we know in this life is with the normal taxes. So you take your mind with you to your next birth. And when liberation means to be freed from that mind, to be freed from that subtle mind, then you get your original spiritual mind and spiritual intelligence. You have thinking and willing and intellectual process in the uh, liberated state also, but then it's not a separate mind, it's your own faculty. By your own desire you can go at a certain rate, but if you get some kind of like special mercy, goes faster. But uh, mercy is a something which uh, maybe more have a factor, but anyway, even just by one's own desire and by the practice, one can very systematically, step by step, reach to the level of uh, complete ecstatic bhava uh, of spiritual realization, which is the step just before complete liberation of prema, pure love. Bhava one's already considered as good as liberated. So, step by step, systematically, you can go up to that. It's just a question of. Uh, we take a spiritual master because the spiritual master guides us, he gives us his shelter, and by his uh, guidance and blessings, one can go quicker. Some different obstacles are easily removed. There's certain different like, shortcuts, in a sense. Not shortcuts, really, but uh, ways of getting ahead quicker. One can hope. We don't depend on that in the sense that we continue just to practice the regulated practice, the system of meditation known as the Bhakti Yoga system, and we go up step by step. But we tend to hope to get a little dispensation to get up, to get ahead quicker. These are the two factors. So the factor we have control of is just our own practice and desire. So by that we can achieve to a level above, and achieve perfection. It's not dependent on karma. Karma has to do with your material. Good karma will give you whether you're good looking, whether you have money, whether you have good education, if you have a good birth. These type of things are the results of good karma. If someone has illegal cases, they have the sickness, they have, they have uh, accidents and natural calamities, things like that, out of their control. These are the effects of bad karma. Spiritual life can go ahead even if you have bad karma. Sometimes people get in an accident, just like this lady. She had a bad experience if some of her relatives passed away. But that also gave her a kind of uh, a viewpoint that material life is temporary and just find out what is the real meaning of life, what is the purpose of life, and so on. So even in a material suffering, she made some spiritual advancement. So. Therefore, you can't say that spiritual advancement is dependent on karma.